This podcast was recorded on January 10th, 2018. The views and opinions expressed herein are of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, welcome everybody to the Sherman Show. This is the first Sherman Show of 2018. I'm here with my co-host Samuel Lau. Happy New Year, everyone! And that sounds like we got a new uh, catchphrase from Sam for 2018. So things are changing around here, huh, Sam? At least a one-time use. All right. So today uh, our special guest is nobody. So what we thought we'd do to kick off the year is talk about 2018 and just talk about markets, something we haven't done on the Sherman Show to date. And we're going to try to make this uh, timely, get this through compliance quickly and get it up there before all these views are stale um, in the financial markets and make us look really bad. So I think Sam wanted to take over as the co-host. He was offering up the job last year to anybody who would volunteer to be the co-host. We had no takers on that. And so I think uh, we're just going to promote him to host today. So Sam, the ball's in your court. Markets move every second, man, I guess, right? (laughs) Right, exactly. So tell us where we're going to go with this today. Yeah, so I thought it's, it's especially timely on the back of Jeffrey Gunlock's recent webcast titled Just Markets to continue the theme and, you know, explore some of perhaps Jeffrey's ideas, but also bring in an assortment of research from the sell side. As you know, at the year end or even early part of the year, a lot of the sell-side research firms put out their outlook across markets for the remainder of the year. So what I did was I gathered up that research and tried to develop a general consensus amongst the shops to determine which way they think markets, various markets are going to go. So what I've done is broken it up into three or four markets, let's just say equities broadly, and then we can dissect it if we want, and then go into fixed income commodities as well as perhaps a little bit of FX if we have time. But let's just kick it off with equities. So the general consensus, it seems to be across the shops, is that we are in the late stages of a bull market, perhaps. Makes sense. Equities only seem to be going up the last few years. And they couple that with the late stage of the bull market, potentially the late stage of the bull market, with the possible beginning of quantitative tightening and balance sheet unwinds as the possible risks for 2018. However, the buy the dip mentality seems to hold true across 2018 for these researchers. Yeah. So, so what do we think about that? You know, it, it is tough too when you've seen equity markets go up uh, nine consecutive years in a total return basis, or at least in the U.S. market. You know, I think that ties the record as we've seen for most consecutive years out there. Um, a lot of people do think we can get year ten out of this because of the fiscal stimulus coming really from the tax reform, which actually does seem to be pretty pro stimulus in the short term. As you dissect it, although we sit in a high tax state, don't get all the benefits from the salt side, and there's a lot of dejected people in the state of California, state of New York, and perhaps <laughs> Illinois and Jersey as well. But when you actually really start to dissect it and look at the data set, it's roughly 97, 98% of taxpayers get a tax break in 2018. So although that is, you know, again, it's the high 1%, 2% in those states that, that aren't really benefiting from it. So I think there could be this short-term stimulus. The question always becomes, what's priced in, right? It's not like this tax plan came together overnight, although I think the president would try to tell you that did happen, right? That's right. He was working very hard on that. 
um, was the first time they actually got Congress to agree on something throughout the entire 2017 political year. So I can see the idea of wanting to be bullish to the stock market for the idea that corporate earnings should benefit from this, right? I mean, reduction in the corporate tax rate from 35% at the highest marginal to 21% is a huge difference. Uh, We've seen some corporations come out and announce that they're going to give one-time bonuses to employees. Um, I did see the opposite side. That's right. Where actually uh, a couple of corporations actually announced layoffs as well, bonuses to those there, and then layoffs come in the future. But in the short term, and I'm talking extremely short term, it's hard to see how that money doesn't get spent, right? Workers getting a $1,000 bonus. I mean, I think the propensity to spend that is probably pretty high. Perhaps there is some pay down of debt through that. But in general, I think that it is something in the short term, you could see a little increased spending. Now, the criticisms come from, obviously, these tax cuts don't last forever at the personal level. They do. They are permanent, or at least at this stage, indefinite for the foreseeable future for corporates which does benefit the earnings side. So, you know, we like to look at all these historical measures, think about CAPE ratios. And as I've been telling people, um, you know, the problem with the tax reform is the CAPE ratio doesn't see tax reform. It's a backward looking metric. So the CAPE ratio will remain elevated. It probably puts an even larger gap between what the current CAPE ratio is on the U.S. equity market and ultimately kind of what forward estimates look like. But it, it, it's going to be challenging to, to actually ascertain what that benefit is. Although we know it should have some stimulative shot, the biggest question I would say to this thesis is, what is priced in? And so I think um, as you look at it, it's probably short-term bullish for equities. But again, as, as you rationalize this, and l- let's see how the debt markets respond. I think you, know, I think you said we'll talk fixed income later. Mm-hmm. But as we talk about some of these risks, I'd like to revisit this U.S. equity idea as we talk about the interest rate side of the equation. because. We all know that interest rates do indeed matter. Yeah. And, you know, talking about the price, then a lot of it has to do with, as we're talking about valuations, is the improvement that we're going to see in earnings per share, too, right? Because a lot of this reform could lead to perhaps increased buybacks. Right. Well, I mean, if I'm a corporate CFO and thinking about shareholders, and that seems to be maximizing shareholder yield and things like that, that's what I'd want to do, right? It boosts my share price or rationalizes my share price makes me look good to my board. And perhaps, you know, I I can get my stock options out of that. So it'll be, I think what you're saying is that there's this excess capital flow around due to higher after-tax income, Mm -hmm. but does it go into CapEx? Correct. Where is it going to go? How is it going to be spent? And what we've seen is CapEx has been, you know, relatively, I wouldn't say depressed, but it's been moderate over the last couple of years. And even repatriation of some of these cash flows, right? That people talk about this big stimulus from money coming back, it's really hard to see that it goes into additional CapEx. Maybe at the margin, there is some increase there. But the, the fact is they've had cash, they, they have these big amounts on the balance sheet. If they really had these ideas for great projects, they would go do it. But they're finding better ROE by buying back shares, and perhaps even just paying dividends one times out to shareholders too. So we'll have to see what it looks like thus far. You're giving it to workers, which is really, I think some of it's political, of course. I, that's a good thing. Workers haven't had huge raises, although we could talk about minimum wage increase in 18 states this year as we turn the calendar year. So we're going to see a little bit of wage pressure there. It is a good thing, putting money in people's pockets. And let's see how the IRS tables come out too for after-tax paycheck distributions, right? So this is kind of the debate right now is that how can the IRS get the tables done quick enough because it was passed right at the end of the year to start getting into people's pockets by the end of the month where they weren't able to really publish those tables in time to set withholdings already. So 
if people do see some increase in after-tax pay, perhaps that gets the stimulus going a little bit. And maybe this gives us our kick to actually get to like the 3% GDP that's been uh, somewhat mysterious to us on a real basis here in the U.S. Yeah, so I guess it remains to be seen if this supply-side type of economic policy will really trickle down to the consumers where they actually see the benefit, because that's what ultimately is important in this type of framework. Right. You mentioned that. It makes me think about all the Keynesian supply-side arguments that really haven't trickled down. It's done well in terms of asset price inflation, but asset price is going up. But this monetary policy and the extraordinary measures we've used through the quantitative easing programs hasn't necessarily led to an increased participation from the consumer. So we'll have to see thus far in the history of trickle-down economics. It doesn't have a good track record, but perhaps this time it's different. Perhaps it's different this time. That's right. So, you know, the research, the consensus appears to be for U.S. equities at the sell side level. It seems to be up, up, up for equities across the board. Like Superman, up, up, like in Superman, away. up, up, in the way. U.S. equities, European equities, EM equities, developed market equities, Japanese equities, you name it. So I guess what are some of the, the warning signs people should be watching out for? What are some of the risks that could come in and upset this consensus way of thinking? Yeah, I think that when the calendar year turns, it's always amazing to see, you know, you're forced to rethink things, or at least uh, a lot of people in the investment industry think that. What changed from, you know, the end of December to the first week of January that, oh my gosh, I have to do something different with my portfolio. I've got to change my way of thinking. And so, why I say that, I think one of the most dangerous things is the naive extrapolation, right? When you think about the equity markets last year, most markets did in the 20 plus percent. And as a dollar investor, 20 plus percent last year. And so I think some of the risks, this naive extrapolation of this recent experience or recency bias that people think that it just can continue forever. The continuation of that is that we've had really low volatility as well. Some people have speculated that that's, you know, volatility has left some of the financial markets and all the speculators went to the cryptocurrency world. Uh, I don't think all the speculators are just purely there, given those market caps, albeit significantly higher they were one year ago. Uh, I don't think that's where all the speculation is. So I think a lot of this is predicated upon a calm interest rate environment, which we'll get to in a little bit. Been a kind of choppy few days around here recently in, in rates. It's been low vol in equities where you've talked about buy the dip mentality. Did we ever see a 3% peak to trough drawdown in, in 2017 on the stock market? No, we haven't. I think I'm trying to remember the number of days, but I think it was, I saw something at our, our friend uh, Jim Bianco's website putting out around 281 days. I think it's 381. That was on the 5%. Oh, so that's a 5%. 5%, 5%, 5%, 5%, 5%, 5%, 5%, 5%, 5%, 5%, yeah. So even though 3%, 5. I think it was 281. We'll have to go back and look, but uh, it's, well, it's been a long time. Right. So maybe that by the dip, that's extrapolation once again, that there has not really been any significant drawdown. And so I think that the risk is, is that you know, people get complacent, that think that equities can always go up. You know, a 2.5% pullback is a, a recession almost anymore, <laughs> that you got to put all your chips on the table again. And so I think, you know, the idea here is that could we miss on earnings, you know, is this all this euphoria about tax reform? Is it already priced in? And so you're talking about the US versus Europe versus EM. It's interesting you set them in that order because that's kind of the order of valuation of if you think about the CAPE ratio, for instance, you know, you have roughly a 32 CAPE ratio in the US market, something closer to like 19 to 20, depending on how you dissect Europe today. And it's about 15 on the EM side. If you can actually just put that in the context for our listeners, see what is a 32 CAPE 
mean in terms of history? Where's it been? You know, how's it looking? Yeah, I think the long-term historical average, if you go back to Professor Schiller's website, and he, I think he takes it back to like 1861 or 1881. I can't ever recall. It's a little bit before my time, especially an investor even just on, on this planet. But the long-term average is closer to like 16 to 17, taking that longer time frame. And so what that means is that you're about 2x the long-term average. And so the way you know, we think about valuation metrics is simply saying, okay, if it's above average, that means you should expect below average returns. And if it's below average, expect above average returns. If it's average, kind of expect average returns. And that doesn't mean each year. Remember going into 2017, the CAPE ratio was elevated. It was, in, it was in the mid to high 20s. And we had earnings growth, right? Mm-hmm. And you had some multiple expansion there that drove both those things. So it doesn't portend that there's a crash uh, that's imminent. But what it does say is that you should kind of set yourself for lower expected returns. And I think that's, that's one of the more amazing things in, uh, when looking at the equity markets is that people keep talking about expect lower returns, expect lower returns. Remember, the mantra going to 17 is valuations high, expect lower returns. And so everybody's expecting lower returns. And the S&P 500 did twice the return that it did in 2016. So, so much for anchoring people's expectations. Ms. Market um, actually gave them a very strong rate of return. And, you know, the, the CAPE ratio has been elevated for many years and the U.S. equity market still goes up. So I just wonder, you know, when people talk about, oh, we're expecting lower returns and expecting it. This extrapolation of, oh, low return means 20, 20%. Um, if that's the case, well, it is low return versus the crypto world. That's right. right? Um, and so, again, uh, it's, I think this recency bias is extrapolation is something that, that is dangerous to, to view there. So going to my long-winded rant here, if you, if you take the same kind of metric and think about the European market, what you see there is it's a lot cheaper there. The emerging markets still are a lot cheaper. So if you buy into this thesis that we will continue to have this coordinated global growth story, then the EM should be the biggest benefactor here because a strong global economy should lead into, uh, especially for a lot of the commodity exporters, um, you know, higher participation in, in commodity consumption, which uh, benefits those countries well. Perhaps it leads to a slightly uh, weaker dollar over, over that period as well. And also during this whole thing, what you have is a significantly lower multiple. So you're not paying as much for a dollar of earnings. And so, again, I think the idea here is that if you want to deploy money, new money into equities, it's probably best to kind of shy away from the U.S. Because, again, everybody knows the story. The tax reform had been talked about since the campaign trail. So it's not that this came overnight. The markets know that that was in there. And again, you, you didn't see this massive jump in equity prices the day that the reform came through. It's been a gradual push upward. And so uh, perhaps that's just um, you know, thinking about 2018 prospects. Okay. So let's put away the uh, crystal ball on, on equities for now and, and shift into something that is near, the, near and dear to uh, Double Line's heart and talk fixed income. Okay. Actually, one of the concerns that many um, analysts had for U.S. equities and, and saw it as a warning sign, as a kind of a precursor to maybe taking some chips off of the equity table, was using the credit market, uh, particularly here in the U.S., as an indicator of potential weakness in U.S. equities. Surprisingly, though, not many people had an opinion, or maybe not so surprising, not many people had an opinion on the, the path of credit or even interest rates in 2018, but it seemed like the general theme was that yields may be up 
slightly. Slightly. I think that's well. I think a lot of that. A lot of that's people getting burned on saying rates are going higher. Rates are going higher. The broken clock effect. But they're still saying rates higher. It's just we're going to dial it back a notch. And you know the work we've been doing on the fixed income market and thinking about the catalyst for rates. At this stage in the cycle, rates should be somewhat higher in the U.S. Now, when I say rates should be higher, you know, there's all these different points along the curve we can talk about. The Fed has done a good job of raising interest rates, not derailing the economy, keeping asset prices high. Ms. Yellen looks on track. Um, she's got another month left, but looks on track to have one of the best <laughs> kind of track records there, albeit a very short one, when it comes to raising rates and not derailing the economy and, and getting asset prices and, and GDP as well up. However, I don't think she should get all the credit for it. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of policies out there. But when you start to look at kind of the dynamics of the curve, uh, what you're seeing is the front end of the yield curve, for instance, the two-year, is setting new highs all the time. And so this is the part of the market that really drives off of Fed policy and, and pricing in future hikes, because you're talking about simply just two years out in investments. And right now, today, as we speak, the two years at a new high, uh, new high for the year. <laughs> you know, <laughs> breaking news. Break, right? Breaking news. Breaking news. We're, we're on uh, trading day number seven of the year, and we're at a one ninety seven two year. And so rates have been going up. Uh, if you look at the two year, and I encourage everyone to look at this chart, it doesn't look like you know one of those random walks or this kind of noisy geometric Brownian process. What it is, it's it's a linear line. It's a straight line practically. I guess linear and line mean the same thing. But when you look at the back end of the curve, if you think about the 10-year, for instance, it's kind of been penned down for a while, but it seems that it's coiled up and ready to kind of snap. And what I mean by coiled is that it's traded in this massive range. And if you look last year, it was like between 200 base by 262. But really, most of the year, it's spent between 220 and really 250, a very tight trading range. And there's been all kinds of explanations for its low volatility. The Fed is, you know, going to destroy the market, but there's foreign buyers that are coming to market and there's not a lot of data behind them. You know, when you look at, you know, some people call it fake news, but ultimately what you see is that, you know, it's, it's these policies that from the central bankers around the globe, it's not just the U.S. that tend to be keeping these rates range bound. And something changed this week. You saw the BOJ come out and say that they're going to stop buying as much along the long end of the curve. And it moved Japanese JGB's rates massively. I think they were up a basis point yesterday, maybe basis point and a half on the 30s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, on a percentage basis, which is which people troll those charts out. Um, but again, remember, it's rate differentials, not percentages. What, what that did is that started to plant the seed in investors' minds that, well, maybe we won't get this accommodated policy forever, right? The BOJ has been one, the Bank of Japan has been one that has been committed to this massive amount of QE, especially relative on a percentage of GDP basis. And the market knows that the ECB is uh, looking to pare down their quantitative easing program. So they're actually doing what we call taper here in the US, a phrase I hate. But instead of buying 60 billion euros a month, we're now talking about 30 billion a month uh, starting this month of January, which starting to kind of get an investor's psyche of that, well, perhaps we won't always have this commitment to buy assets out there from the central bank. And what that means, ultimately, is that there's more marginal supply of bonds. So people focus on the level of central bank balance sheets, when indeed, it's not really the level that matters, it's kind of the rate of change. It's the direction, the path um, of what they're doing. And so if you think about the Fed stated policy that Ms. Yellen put us on, that everybody assumes and extrapolates that Mr. Powell will continue, 
is that now we're buying 20 billion less of bonds a month, taking the difference in Draghi at 30 billion euros and roughly using a one-two exchange rate. We have an additional 36 billion coming out in the market of dollars. So you have $56 billion less of bonds being bought by what we call price takers, right? People who are indiscriminate buyers that just buy because it's the state objective, not thinking about the value proposition or valuation. And you reduce that marginal supply. At the surface, it has to be a little negative for bonds. Someone has to absorb those bonds. Those bonds exist in the marketplace, right. right? And so if they exist, someone else has to own them. And so unless you find another indiscriminate buyer, then it should put a little bit of pressure on yields upward. Now, BOJ, uh, no one was talking about them buying less bonds, right? So now if the BOJ is starting to buy less bonds as well in the marketplace, that could lead to more marginal supply of bonds out there. And don't forget that the Fed, the amount they're going to let roll off their balance sheet each month increases every quarter. So it's not just it's 20 billion this month, right? It turns into 30 billion in April and it turns into 40 billion in July and it turns into 50 billion in October, assuming we get on that path. That's a lot of new net supply of bonds that actually are tradable in the flow of the marketplace. So that at the surface is somewhat bond unfriendly, at least from a an absolute yield perspective when thinking about sovereign yields. But remember, sovereign yields are the basis for all the credit assets. So again, long-winded to get to answer your question, credit markets have done extremely well because they're reflecting what has been going on in the economy. A U.S. economy has done well. It's done well. We're grinding about a 2.3% real rate. You slap on CP on top of that, puts us about four, a four-handle nominal GDP. Default rates are near historical lows, way below the average experience. And so investors have been rewarded for taking that incremental credit risk. But in a rising type of rate environment, if, in order to keep the return constant, that means spreads have to compress. And that's the differential between the credit instrument and kind of the um, treasury instrument here in the U.S. And so if you look at that, we're kind of tight. We're at post-cycle tights or post, I mean, post-crisis tights of spread products where you look at IG, investment-grade bonds, you look at U.S. high-yield bonds, uh, you look at loans, they're, they're getting pretty tight as well post-crisis. But the bullish case is that they're not at pre-crisis tights, right? So there's still the historical experience of a little ways to go. And perhaps there is a reason for a little bit of melt up there, but it's a melt up before things melt down. Yeah. So we explored some of the potential impact on you know, monetary policy and stimulus there, especially with the specter of the, uh, let's call them the OG monetary policy stimulus experts, the Japanese, you know, perhaps coming off, you know, bringing it off the table and the influx of bonds hitting the market potentially. The OG JGBs. OG JGBs. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So we've got that side, you know, from the monetary policy side. What about fiscal stimulus? We spent a little bit of time talking about from the equity perspective, but what does that mean for bonds if, you know, we've got the fiscal stimulus coming through? Yeah, so so this is where you really start to get negative on bonds when you start to think, or at least from a U.S. perspective. And, And when I say negative on bonds, we're not saying that it's going to, you know, the bonds that you all own are going to go to zero. Uh, we're talking about the path of interest rates actually finally pushing up. And so on the fiscal side, so we have the tax cuts, the tax reform, however you want to call it, that will start to be financed in the deficit this year. And the estimates, you know, vary on it. Uh, no one knows for sure yet. But let's say it's roughly, to use round numbers, $200 billion. So our deficit will expand this year from you know, roughly, it was about $550 billion, $600 billion. What's $50 billion amongst friends, right? So we're going to expand another $200 billion there. 
So the deficit goes up, right? But that's your stance of being able to pay back the bonds at, at really current uh, rates. Now, what happens there is you have this $200 billion increase from the tax plan. What about the bonds that roll off the Fed's balance sheet? Now, it's not the entire balance sheet that matters. It's actually the treasuries that matter. And so if you recall, for the listeners out there, the Fed's balance sheet is comprised primarily of two things, U.S. treasuries and U.S. agency mortgage-backed securities. Well, the treasuries that the Fed owns actually, and if you read their annual reports of earnings, when they show, they look like a hedge fund. Uh, They're out there bragging about their earnings, but they actually rebate all of the coupon back to treasury. So what that means is the bonds that sit on the Fed's balance sheet are actually financed at zero, right? So now you have another set of bonds that have to be financed at interest rate. However, the interest rate is just kind of, let's say roughly it's 2% times the size. And you look at the unwind, okay, the unwind is going to be approximately, I think it's about $280 billion of, of treasuries this year. And so if you take that, eh, you know, you're talking 2% of that, you know, it's roughly another $50 billion. So eh, again, what's that amongst friends? But the key point is all those bonds that roll off of the balance sheet, and this is regardless of what happens, have to be refinanced, right? Because we don't run a surplus, we run a deficit, in order to retire those treasuries, you actually have to pay off the bonds. So now all of a sudden, uh-oh. uh-oh, yeah. So we have our $50 billion in interest roughly. We have, you know, call it $300 billion in there. All of a sudden now we're creeping on that $1 trillion number. And that's assuming all the estimates are correct on that. And that doesn't even talk about new fiscal measures, right? So you're talking about fiscal stimulus. We're talking about fat tax reform. Um, the president has talked about introducing an infrastructure bill, talking about building that wall Whoa. again. That wall's not cheap. It's not going to pay for itself as they say. But again, it's hard to see how they're going to pay for these things. So what you also have is, you know, the demographic issue where we get increases this year, next year, Social Security, Medicare. We're going to trillion dollar deficits, what this says. And it's going to spike pretty quickly. It's going to spike likely this year. And it probably gets bigger in 19. And so as you start to look at this, what you're seeing is that it's a structural setup in a manner that says, we should have more supply of bonds on the market. Remember, the deficit has to be financed through treasuries. That's how we do it. So not only are we buying less as an indiscriminate buyer through the central bankers, the OGs, as you call them, but you also have this new set of bonds that's set to hit the market. And that's not even talking about the supply of bonds in the corporate land, high yield bonds, loans out there, and competing fixed income products. So it does look like we're set to get out of this trading range in 2018 on the yield side. The technicals on the chart say the twos, fives, tens, all those points in the curve are going up. The only one that's not confirming today at this stage that we're, we're kind of in that the inflection point in the cycle is the 30-year bond, the long bond. And I think it's only about six basis points away right now, 293, 294. Let's call it roughly three being that inflection point there. And so we know with interest rate, just like inflation, when it starts to rise, it can happen quite quickly. And you can have that voracious move. But there's some pivotal points still. You know, you got to clear on the on 263 on the 10 year um, before you get there. Three is going to be a major number on the 10 year. So even though we're paying this picture right now, there's some key levels to watch there. And we've had a, a meaningful rise in the last couple of days in mean, bonds. As you've seen, again, the BOJ announced they're buying less. And can people trying to think about the impacts of all this fiscal stimulus or just even from the corporate tax reform? So you did mention uh, inflation there, and most people, when they think about inflation, they think about fixed income, but perhaps there's another asset class that we can talk about in the context of inflation. This asset class, I've heard it you know, called the most underloved 
most underappreciated and perhaps one of the most underowned asset classes out there, and that is commodities, which I think it's we haven't kept it a secret what we think what a, a promising trade is for 2018, and that's commodities. Yeah. Just want to see what your feel is on that. With the sell side, I can tell you right now, it's a mixed bag for them. Right. You, know, you got about half talking about how it's you know they're very constructive on commodities, and the others are just they just don't know. Right. Well, while the equity markets had this nine-year consecutive run um, <laughs> in the having uh, posting total returns in a, in a positive manner, commodity market has not been as fortunate. And just using something like the Bloomberg Commodity Index, since the financial crisis, you had two positive years in a row coming out of the crisis. You had five down years in a row, which was, if you recall, the webcast we did back in uh, 2016, saying time to revisit. Kind of looks good with the benefit of hindsight, at least at this stage. And now you've had two consecutive years of commodities actually post a return. So I guess it, the, the naive extrapolator says there's another five negative to come. But when you look at the setup out there, it really seems like this is the time once again to revisit the commodity allocation. And a, a lot of it comes to is commodities tend to do well early cycle, late cycle, right? In the middle of the cycle, they get overproduced and they tend to have a, a bad experience across that. But they tend to be historically very good at the late cycle and the pro-cyclical part of the economy. And given the fact that you've seen underinvestment, I'd say from the production side, especially in some of the major commodities like the energy complex, the industrial mines, which even with these price rises, we're not seeing commitment to new mines at this stage, uh, primarily in copper and nickel, which are, uh, had a lot of uh, robust demand in the second half of 2017. And I think, you know, as we talk about the dollar being perhaps weak as the rest of central banks try to catch up to what the Fed's doing. It's, that's accretive to the commodity complex. And so it doesn't mean that dollars go down, that commodities have to go up. But the biggest headwind a lot of times for commodities is strength of the U.S. dollar. And at this stage of the cycle, the Fed has been hiking, the Fed has been tapering, they've been reducing this. But now we're talking about issuing more and more debt, which is bad ultimately for the dollar in the long run. So I think those two views are combined as well when we talk about FX and talk about commodities is that I think that's probably a consensus view that the, the dollar probably does continue to weaken from here. And if you look at kind of seven-year cycles, we seem to be rolling over in that after the strength of the dollar. It really ended in 2015. Yes, in the election, we saw a little bit push at the, at the end of 16, as people thought, perhaps there's more inflation, Yellen and company would move a lot faster. But that really subsided. It was close to like that quadruple top on there when you look at the technicals. But to, I, I think the one thing I can say is I don't know anyone out there saying that commodities are extremely overvalued, right? We run into a lot of asset allocation meetings, and a lot of the debate is how overvalued are equities, you know, regardless of, of where you sit in the world. And the one thing I don't hear from investors, a lot, a lot of them don't even talk about commodities, as you said, underloved, underowned, perhaps underappreciated even. But uh, what, the work we've done shows that late cycle tends to be the best part for the commodity cycle. And, you know, right before you go into the recession, commodities tend to be one of the better performing sectors of the market. So, again, if history is a guide there, that seems to be the case. But when you start to look at the fundamental valuation, it's really hard to argue that commodities are expensive. And we have some charts out there that show that you know, in that long-term, you know, cumulative growth process of the Bloomberg Commodity Index, it shows that, you know, it's bouncing off the two sigma cheap area. It's about one and three quarters. So just talking about the deviation for the trend. So it's underperformed that long-term trend. And we start to see life in it. It's not that we're trying to catch a falling knife here, right? What you find is that it's hit these levels and it's bounced. And you've started to see some strength. And, and again, with a proactive way of doing it, 
and perhaps you know better design than just a BCOM, there's better ways to to allocate to commodities as well. So it's something we do like. It's one thing that when we talk to people, we never get that argument about, oh yeah, they're super expensive. People may say, oh, I got burned. I bought them at the wrong time. But it does seem that it's something to think about today and something that uh, we've been advocating to our clients for the last few months. Yeah. And, and again, as you called it on our webcast, you know, time to revisit back in April of 16. It was a good time to revisit the sector. And again, we think it has merits for where we are at this, at this stage of the business cycle. Yeah, it's, it's one of those interesting things, too, when you go out and you speak with people. Uh, you talk to them about equities. You talk to them about bonds. You talk to them about commodities. And it seems like with equities and bonds, everyone seems to be covered. They know exactly how they should be investing. In equities, I'm going to do it this way. In bonds, we don't need an active manager for bonds. We buy our own bonds. So yeah, if that's the opinion, fine. But when it comes to commodities, it doesn't seem like people have a sense of the best way to invest in commodities. And I think that's part of the struggle as well, why people don't invest because they don't understand you know, the nuances with the futures curve, the different uncorrelated uh, commodities within the, the broader universe as well. So if 2018 is indeed the time to revisit commodities, I mean, any clues in terms of a commodity playbook for yourself? Yeah. So uh, revisiting our revisiting call. Huh? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, look, I, I think that it's, it's not about trying to select the commodities. It's trying to benefit from the overall strength there. Look at Various parts of the commodities markets are depressed, like the agricultural sector. I mean, it's been trading at an extremely low level, where it had a rough 2017, where you had the industrial metals do extremely well. Energy has started to rebound there. People are actually questioning, you know, some of the shale play. Can we actually produce enough? OPEC's adhering to the cuts out there, which is kind of strange. We haven't seen that in years. So what it is, it's not making a, a play on, say, we think Brent crude oil is going to this level. Or we're out there saying that, you know, we think nickel has to trade here because of the increased demand with electric cars. The idea is to understand, you know, kind of the market structure, as you mentioned, there's term structure to, to the commodity play, trying to be more active and thinking about how to allocate more appropriately across the curves, uh, across various commodities. And also at times, not just being long, right, being able to, to short things too. But again, that, that talks more about our philosophy of thinking about the market versus for telling someone to do it. So, you know, at the end of the day, what we find is a lot of people like to trade gold, um, you know, it has that kind of store of value idea. The joke always is it has a store of value because people think it does have a store of value, which, you know, I think some of the crypto guys would argue that today, right? Yeah, I mean, the crypto space, we've heard that, that people believe it has value. And, you know, that's the whole idea. Really, at the end of the day, does that $1 bill in your pocket have value? It does because you believe it has value. So, it is, you know, one of those kind of philosophical ideas or psychological ideas. But you know, people trade the gold. They trade. They trade a little bit of oil. People like, you know, the energy complex. There's something inherent. It's one of the few sectors we find in our research that people actually do buy the dip in the energy complex when when energy names are down and oil's down. People believe it's going to rebound. It's one of the few sectors of the market we see that. So. You know, we think it's more pure to have the commodity bet. If you don't really understand the commodity market or you can't find a good product, probably one way of thinking about it too is the energy complex still looks a little depressed relative to the other parts of the market. So as an equity call, um, you know, that's one of the sectors of the market that look pretty good. It looks good on our relative CAPE ratios that go into our CAPE strategy. It's been kicked out because of the poor breadth or poor momentum it's had relative to some of the other sectors in the market. But it is still signaling some cheapness. So although not the direct play, you don't get all the correlation benefits. There's a lot of equity beta for those that want to kind of dip their toe in. Maybe that's another way of thinking about it is, is making a call on the energy complex. 
MLPs do look cheap, do look somewhat attractive as well, but they have a whole different dynamic. They have significantly higher vol than, than the equity side. They're not just the pure play in commodities. They do have some commodity bait, as a lot of people learned through the oil price declines in late 15, early 16. But the pure bet is still going into the overall complex. And there's more things besides oil and gold out there. And that's what you try to deliver in a commodity product. Yeah. Well, I sit next to you. I've sat next to you for a few years now. So I know this conversation could go on for quite some time. But in the interest of time, and you perhaps- You say I'm quite loquacious. I think loquacious, that's the word I think it's the word I used before. And I was corrected by uh, Ritholtz. Yep. Right? Ritholtz says, exactly. I don't think you're quite loquacious. Yeah. So you, what you say does have value. So maybe it's not loquacious. But in the interest of time, let's try to wrap this up. Okay, so we typically at this stage of the game or stage of the podcast go to Sherman Says. And since uh, you're sitting here in the hot seat today, we can't let you pick the words. So we actually do have a special guest here. Uh, We have one of our colleagues, Allison Pfeiffer, who's a manager within our investment services team. Hello, Allison. Hi, hi. <laughs> so oh, I think she's she's listened to a few Sherman shows. I think uh, we may have a new co-host soon. And she's working on Perfect. that catchphrase. So Allison, um, we've ex- you know the rules of the game. Uh, what you're going to do is have one word to each one. Sam, you know the game. You created the game. Um, so without further ado, let's step into the first Sherman says of 2018 with Allison Pfeiffer. go to you, Lau, first. Russia. Important in the outlook. <laughs> wow. Sam criticizes everybody for let's, not using one word. Let's and see if we can go one. a little faster here. I love the Sherman says when I'm on the other end of the, uh, the questioning game. <laughs> okay, tax reform. Done. Infrastructure spending. Coming. Powell. Unknown. Copper gold. Up. <laughs> Burritos. Chili Verde. <laughs> King Taco. This, this. North Korea. Um, my button is bigger. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that was good, except that... It's too many words. Yeah. Too many words. Fire and Fury. Popular. PlayStation VR. Teddy Ball Game. <laughs> Commodities. Attractive. Meditation. Sleep. New Year's Resolution. Dumb. <laughs> you should have a resolution all the time, man. Jeff Mayberry, Mayberry is perfect, he says. <laughs> you could so have said meditation. Right, yeah. Actually, one of our <laughs> colleagues did say they were perfect, so they don't need New Year's oh, resolution. <laughs> and I said maybe a new outlook on oneself is probably a better resolution. Favorite hobby? Video games. German Bund. Up in yield. 2018 Super Bowl champs. I'm going to place myself. I don't even know who's in it. Who's in the playoffs <laughs> right now? I know it's not the Bills. I know it's not the Packers. <laughs> so you only got 30 other teams to pick from <laughs> S&P 500 Rich SpaceX Exciting <laughs> Academia Important <laughs> But very expensive <laughs> Madison, Wisconsin Hometown China Not my hometown <laughs> ECB Hawkish mm. Climate change Real Popcorn shrimp Oh my favorite. <laughs> Cybersecurity. Quintessential. Motorcycles. Harley. Cryptocurrency. Volatile. Opportunity. Commodities. Gunlock. Boss. El Jefe. <laughs> El Jefe. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Allison. That was the longest Sherman says, and uh, probably one of the more interesting ones. So we may have to bring you back. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, especially uh, if we can't get Sam as a co-host again. So I like how you, you took his catchphrase and ran with it. So. Thanks, everybody, for listening, if you're still on. 
This is the kickoff to 2018. This is our out double line outlook for markets with uh, Sam Lau and me, Jeff Sherman. Um, if you have any feedback for us, we've now created a new email address where you can direct your flaming hate directly to us. It's called shermanshow at doubleline.com. Uh, it's all one word, shermanshow at doubleline.com. Uh, we'd also like feedback, any potential uh, people you'd like to hear from with Mr. Lau and I talking to them. Also, if you have any interest in being a co-host, like I said, Sam's, Sam is really trying to duck out of this right now, but I think he, he found himself a home today. So again, any feedback there, we're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and the like. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll be back in a couple weeks. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2018, DoubleLine Capital.